of the world, be it fictional or real. This week we are going very, very much fictional with bad taste. We've got trouble. Good work. Right, we're on our way. Frank. Go, Frank! Jeez, that real ticket! Derek was right all along! Bad Taste was released in 1987 and written and directed by a very well-known director, Mr. Peter Jackson. Jackson was also the cinematographer, producer, actor, editor, special effects guy, makeup artist. He was a jack of all trades when it came to this film. And many people kind of associate Jackson with, obviously, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And they don't tend to think of him and aliens eating brains. While Bad Taste was released in 1987 in New Zealand, it didn't really make its way to the rest of the world until I think it was like 88, 89, and the UK got it in 1990. It had a budget of around 200,000 New Zealand dollars. Um, I've seen a few variations of this budget, but it seems to be around the 200k mark, and it runs for about an hour and a half. The film is a cast and crew that is basically made up of Jackson's mates, and uh, there's this really nice earlier documentary with his parents where they discuss like all the lads that were involved in making the film and how they would go back to their house and the parents would make them beans on toast. It was like people just doubled up on the roles and they basically did what needed to be done. And his parents also go on to discuss like about how they got a camera and he took it from them from a very young age. He was about eight and he was already getting into making little things and people to act for him, making special effects. And his parents then went on to talk about how, you know, special effects and stop motion animation was his thing, his thing from a very young age. And he had such patience to like create those models and just creating his whole, these little films. And this eventually led on to our feature presentation, which is, of course, Bad Taste. How to describe this film? Okay, it is a film about an extremely bunch of ugly, man-eaten aliens who take over a small town in New Zealand, Kehora. Its occupants have disappeared and a group have been sent to discover what has happened. The Astro Investigation and Defence Service, also known as AIDS, sent agents to deal with this issue. The agents are Derek, who is played by Mr Jackson, who, I'll be quite honest, the whole way through I was doubting it was him because it looks absolutely nothing like him. We also have Frank, who's played by Mike Minnett. We've got Ozzy, who's played by Terry Potter, and Barry, played by Peter O'Hearn. 
and it's basically a bunch of guys trying to kill these alien things, get some samples before they get killed themselves. The movie did meet its fair share of concerns though with the Queensland Film Board of Review. They decided to actually pull the film after it had only been released for about three weeks. The issue with banning a film, like we've had films banned, we've got what, The Exorcist, Clock Orange, Battle Royale, that's a great film, Life of Brian, amazing film. And these were kind of all banned in various places. I remember living in Ireland and The Exorcist was banned and I think Life of Brian was banned there. They probably all were. And the thing is with this, when you ban films, obviously everyone's curiosity is piqued even more. More people want to see it because why were they banned? And with Bad Taste, there was also a little bit that needed to be trimmed off to give it that 18 rating. But there was then an issue with the Office um, of the Film and Literature Classification. They had a couple of people on both sides of the fence about how to rate this film, whether to put it out. And there was someone who was kind of a bit on the no fence. And the day that they made the decision, he was um, feeling a bit poorly. He had a bit of a tummy ache. And because of that, he voted no. So basically one person, one person got to say no to this film. And I think that's crazy that one person was able to like do that. And when the Office of Film and Literature Classification then moved away from their banning of films, it was simply not classify them, which again caused an issue in Australia, as at the time of the ban, a film needed to be classified, had to have a classification to be released. So in effect, it was still banned because they didn't have a rating. As mentioned, there had been some of the content cut, but then this was reviewed with a resubmission. And in February 1990, it did actually get passed with an R18 plus rating. So before Jackson actually made Bad Taste, he had only directed a short called The Valley, and that was in 1976. And after Bad Taste, he did go on to direct other comedy, fantasy, sci-fi horrors with films like Braindead, 92, The Frighteners in 96. And then, of course, he did Heavenly Creatures, which I discuss in episode 19. But that's not horror as such, but it is true crime because it's based on a real murder that did actually happen in New Zealand. For bad taste, like any movie, he's obviously going to need some funding and he wasn't the big, the big guy that he is today. But luckily that didn't matter because he went to the New Zealand Film Commission for a grant and he met a man there called Jim Booth and he did provide funding. And Jim Booth then, he must have had such faith in this project because he actually joined the production team after he quit his job with the New Zealand Film Commission. And when it came to this film, it wasn't a film that I was really expected to see back in the day. And to be honest with you, I'm not really quite sure when it would fit in. Like I know 80s horror can be a bit questionable, but this is, it's really over the top, but maybe that's the appeal. It's just so different from anything, you know, you remember, I remember, um, I saw this in the early 90s and I remember finding it funny and I laughed a lot. It went down as a sci-fi horror comedy, but this time around, I wasn't laughing, but I was, I was so grossed out. I mean, really grossed out. But for me, 80s horror, I kind of remember it more as like the slasher kind of genre. You know, you've got your, your Elm Street, your Halloween, your Friday the 13th. Um, you know, and that's what I think of when I think back to horror of the 80s. I don't really recall people discussing bad taste. Maybe they did in the 90s, but like it's so far away, I don't really remember. So as you can imagine, the jump from Lord of the Rings to this is a big one. Is it a good film? Um, uh, 
Is it something that you would kind of see on a budget in a university? Maybe. But it does have this cult following. The film itself took about four years to film. It was done like over weekends. And obviously they didn't have the budget to kind of do it all in one go and to keep people's pockets full while filming. So it was a very DIY film, especially in the terms of effects. You know, it kind of felt like he was just grabbing what he could, where red dye ketchup. Um, I don't know what substance they used to make the brains and stuff, but it was like, how gross can we make this? And it it did begin as a short film. It was actually only 20 minutes long, but it grew into what we see today. And it was filmed apparently near where Jackson lived at Pakura Bay in New Zealand. It took so long to actually make though that one of the characters died during production. This was Doug Wren. He plays Lord Crumb. So due to how this was filmed, it was a non-audio filming. The voices were dubbed for him, was then dubbed by a different actor, Peter Vere-Junes. Uh, Jackson himself used a 16mm Bolex camera and that didn't support the audio, which was added later. So although due to funding from the New Zealand Film Commission, they did actually hire a camera that did sound, but this proved uh, futile as they they didn't really know what they were doing and the sound that they did include it wasn't usable so you could say this film really was a massive experience for Jackson he probably learned a lot along the way and you know look how far you can come from a film like this also another actor Craig Smith he plays Giles and he was apparently written out the film because during those four years he married um, a devout Christian woman and she actually objected to him working on Sundays because, as I said, they did this at weekends. But he got divorced. And after he got divorced, he got put back in the film again. So I suppose it all worked out for him in the end. So would I class this as a horror movie, even though it states it's a horror movie? Not in the traditional sense. As I've mentioned, I, you know, in previous episodes, I'm not into gore for gore's sake. But this is a different type of gore. You don't you don't feel like the torture. You don't feel the knives going in. It's. It's, it isn't squeamish because you can kind of imagine it happening. You're you're squeamish because you're trying to work out what you're watching and trying to figure out if you're going to kind of have a physical reaction with this. You know, when I see films like Hostel or Saw, it's, it seems realistic and not out of the realm of possibility to imagine like some sick fucker out there getting his jollies from torturing people. I mean, we have our very own serial killers to do that. But this is just gross. And that's the only way I can describe it. There is a scary moment in it, which I will mention later. So the film itself, it opens up in a very uh, Bond-esque way. You're not really sure what's going on. It's very secretive. And, you know, apparently Jackson was influenced by some in, by some form as a kid by the Bond films. And we see this character in the dark. He's got a cigarette in tow, all very mysterious. And he says, it's a job for real men. And he pushes the button that says the boys. And you cut to a man then in a blue shirt following another man. Without much urgency, he has a an axe in tow, and the other man is simply saying, "Stop! No, you know, piss off!" Basically, it's all very slow. The um, the man with the axe doesn't seem, you know, he's with it, and we kind of know straight off from the bat that something's not right because he then shoots him in the head, and these just brains just splatter everywhere. You you've got to get used to seeing brains if you're going to watch this film. While this is all happening, um, this is happening to Barry. We hear someone talking over the background, like through like a walkie-talkie, and that's Derek. And I must say, he's pretty irritating from the start. This is who Jackson plays. Derek, for me, was such a dick and a lunatic. And you really don't like him. Like, while well, the acting is questionable, but that's what you get basically when you hire a bunch of mates to help. You instantly don't like him. He's 
he has some interactions with the aliens and it's quite this long process of an edge of a cliff and a fight and again it's quite slow and there's you know the cliff is very steep and there's lots of rocks and stuff and you'd feel like you'd be gone straight away and he does take this tumble off a cliff after fighting with his aliens and you know some of his brains fall out as they do but he kind of just sticks them back in and puts his hat on it'd be fine you know it'd be fine and with Derek he's kind of got that whole Doctor Who vibe look about him the scarf he wears it definitely doesn't go unnoticed if uh, anyone's a Doctor Who fan out there and while Jackson does play Derek he also plays an alien called Robert and he looks very much like Peter Jackson there and here he gets to have a fight for himself on the cliff because Robert is fighting Derek and while Derek has his own problems we do have Barry who I'll be honest I did like this guy I was rooting for him you want him to be okay Derek couldn't give a shit about but we also have Frank and Ozzy they're likable too you don't wish them any harm and they're quite amusing but for me the main focus the character I really wanted to get out of this you know unharmed was Barry the film it's all a bit confusing at the start when you when you see the cover of this movie there's this obvious alien character I think he's giving the middle finger but when we watch the movie that visual you don't kind of see nearer until the end so we only see men running around in blue shirts that look like they've escaped from like a local prison or something. We know, we know they're not what one would call normal um, because of how they're behaving. So, but if you knew nothing about the film, you, would, you wouldn't have a clue what was going on. You'd simply think like a bunch of maniacs had escaped like a local asylum or a prison and, and were just simply hell-bent on causing some sort of murderous havoc. The film kind of progresses like this. You know, the humans are trying to avoid being killed and eaten by these aliens by killing them first. So there's a lot of blood. And as I mentioned, there is a lot of brains. The thing with the blood scenes in which there are plenty and it isn't simply someone or something bleeding, we get the squirting, we get the gushing and we get the sound effects. The noise of the squelching and the sloshing about the brains, oh, insides, it's okay. It's beyond disgusting and you know it isn't real and let's face it, it's not exactly the most realistic version of these body parts when you see them, like you're, you don't feel that that's what brains look like but it gives you the desired effect that they were going for and also the consistency of it all. It looks so gross and honestly it was a gag fest as when they would move and it got stuck to something it would kind of just like pull away and it would make those noises and it was just like Bleh. but but the vilest scene for me is within this house that they take over so the house where the aliens took over is like this protected colonial home it's a real place it does weddings and special events um it's based at one okawa road papakoha poirio city i'm so sorry i know i'm completely butchering this so to any people that are listening that are from new zealand i apologize but it's about 20 minutes north of wellington got that bit right um jackson's father though he had to convince the caretakers of this home to actually let um, his son and the crew use this house. And that's another thing, this film, it's just such a personal affair. So many people involved that made it possible. And I love that. Like imagine getting all these people to help and be committed for four years, four years, giving up their weekends, giving up the house. I must say, Peter Jackson must be a really nice bloke. Like to think that all those people would do all that. And I really hope everyone, you know, he keeps in touch with them all. That would be a really nice thing. Although Barry, my favourite in it, played by Peter Hearn, he did sadly pass away in 2010. But on IMDb, like many, they didn't really go on to do much in the film industry. 
Um, but Peter did help uh, Jackson with his short film, The Valley. So they must have been buddies for quite a while. But with regards to the house, there is a scene that would have caused damage. So obviously they couldn't use it because that was out of the question. Like a corner of it had to be destroyed by a, a rocket fire and obviously couldn't happen. So they went and found a location that had a, like a similar backdrop to what they were using and they built a set. The house replica was about five metres high and again, a personal affair. The cast, the crew, they became builders and they built this house. The house ends up being a real danger zone, though, for the character Giles, who is played by, as I mentioned, Craig Smith. Uh, we see him driving around and he does escape the clutches of Robert, a.k.a. Peter Jackson. He, they do have a little bit of a, an ordeal where he nearly gets caught, but he thinks he's got away with it. He thinks he's in the clear. He sees this house. He goes up. But unfortunately, bad people answer the door. And the next we see him. Now, this is the thing that I think is quite scary because it seems I don't want to say realistic, but I feel like this could actually happen if you were, you know, if you bumped into the wrong, the wrong killer. He's in this giant pot of water, kind of surrounded by bits of veg, and he's got this apple in his mouth. And, you know, they're really taking their time over him to eat him. They want this one to literally stew, you know, get all that flavour out of him as much as they possibly can. And this is where we meet Lord Crumb. He's the chief antagonist, like the, the leader of the group. And he seems to be the only alien with a name and any real character. The rest are kind of walking brain dead zombies. I know Jackson's called Robert, but this he doesn't really speak. The other one, Lord Crumb, has something to say. He's like a he almost feels like a cult leader when he's talking. And this whole house scene, I, I just oh, my God, it's oh, OK, so. Giles is obviously trying to get himself out of this situation he's in, but there's no talking to them. I mean, they're aliens and you know his death is not going to be a pleasant one. And there's a lot of these things around and he knows he's basically fucked. Right. So but the thing is, why are they here? Why are they here? So because they keep obviously going for the flesh it's to bring back human flesh to their alien customers on the planet that they live in. Apparently they're harvesting humans for like their own fast food franchise. And you wonder, you know, you, you must wonder a life with these guys invading Earth and like slowly, if they slowly like killed off the human race or would they like catalysts and make us reproduce to keep sending food back to their planet? Like, oh, are we, oh shit, are we like the humans? The humans are the animals of today, like forced to live a life to provide sustenance for people like the way we do with animals it's quite a scary prospect really isn't it um i wonder if there are any alien vegans on this planet who would refuse the human flesh hmm so anyway the thing that really got me with this scene okay Ugh, even thinking about it makes me gag in this house there's um there's a group of them together and we see this um vomit scene and it's beyond fucking gross i mean seriously it's disgusting so robert pukes up this green vomit shit and they all i'm sorry but honestly i'm trying not to gag here they all start eating it like it's the most amazing meal they've ever had and i actually skipped a little bit past it because i didn't want to see it and then um some of the good guys are in trying to you know see what's going on and one of them starts eating it and i was like is that really one of them and he looks like he's really enjoying it and it's just this vomit that's made up of like you know, yogurt and muesli. I eat a lot of yogurt and muesli. It's really nice. Um, oh, God, am I going to be able to eat it from now on? And a food colouring. 
and the actual projectile vomiting in the bowl was done by a puppet with this funnel because there is so much of it but honestly it's the most just if if you if if Jackson was going for the vomit make someone vomit gag factor then then he succeeded because I struggled and honestly if you're looking to lose some weight then put this film on on a daily basis because the last thing you will want to do after seeing this is eat and I made like these burgers today and this little bit of stuff was on the pan afterwards and it just reminded me of the brain the stuff that came out of the burgers sorry burger lovers but no so within this house we see some action with not only the vomit but with Giles as I said he's being prepped for dinner thinks he's not going to be rescued but then we get us some fight scenes. Again, these fight scenes are slow, quite lazy in how they fight, can't be bothered. And I feel like whoever wins, it's luck rather than skill. They just happen to get the right, you know, stabbing or cutting at the right time. And although there are a couple of these like balaclava lads that come in, they seem like quite a capable bunch. Um, a little, A little bit of a resemblance to a group of hardcore mercenaries, you know, bursting to save the day. Well, I say mercenaries, but not really. Um, they just do a bit of a better job at this stage and they're all kitted up to like look the part and luckily for Giles he's rescued by this battle club a lot. It's also when we see the aliens kind of going into their full glory some of them have already like changed into this weird creature thing with these like their shoulders almost look like you know like the 80s shoulder pads that you used to see in Dallas and Dynasty they're kind of like skin shoulder pads and then their the the butt in their jeans is it's split because their bums have turned into like bubble bums god they are ugly as fuck i have to say that now they're all fighting the aliens are looking like aliens and this is where we see Derek completely lose it if that's possible honestly this character is fucking nuts also he's running around with his head now kept together by a belt because brains keep falling out and he just keeps on shoving them back in and picks them off the floor and squishes them in as you do like like these aliens though they they want to go home you know and the the house i mentioned the lovely colonial house it becomes a spaceship and it starts to take off but crazy derek he's inside and he's heading off to outer space but he's not quite done so the alien driver who's driving the house spaceship which is the head guy lord crumb he realizes that something's going on in there there's someone in there and he goes to have a look and it's Derek and he finds Derek and he gets fucked up with a chainsaw now this is a bit messed up you know if it could get any worse you know we kind of see Derek he's looking out the window he sees earth it's kind of like this Texas chainsaw massacre meets the Wizard of Oz there's no place like home after Derek has killed, killed Lord Crumb he does the only logical thing he climbs into the alien skin body and the crazy, scary maniac, you know, looking says, I'm born again, as he busts through it. I'm coming to get you bastards. As he slides through the alien skin before covering his face. Like, he, he's the alien. He's in the alien thing. That's his face. And it's so gross. And he's laughing like a maniac as the house is just heading towards this alien planet. And then we have the survivors on the bottom. And kind of throughout the film, we've seen this car. And it's like got a cardboard cutout of um, the Beatles there. So this Beatles car just turns up again and uh, it's got the cardboard cutouts of them all and they just get in. So, you know, it's just, it's just batshit crazy. But listening, I think when we think about how Jackson got there, it's very impressive. Like this young man with all this dedication to his craft. I mean, from such a young age, when you see him in documentaries as a young man, like it, it's him. That's who he was. This is what he was supposed to do, you know, and, you know, he's so talented. And with this films, while it's nuts, 
you know, what he created is pretty impressive. Like like this film and obviously a young Jackson, he does get compared a lot to the young Evil Dead director, Sam Raimi. You know, they both had this kind of over-the-top ridiculousness about their filmmaking. And they both, of course, had their cult classics. Many people would um, consider Evil Dead a cult classic, as well as this film. And also both did lead on to have massive careers um, and very effects-driven films. And like Jackson, Raimi, you know, he's done it all with regards to the roles behind and front. Like if you go onto his IMDb, he's there all over the place. And there's quite a similarity with these two young guys who have grown into these amazing directors. You know, so for all you budding filmmakers out there, you know, look what you could become from this little thing you might be creating now. You know, you may have your very own bad taste and then one day you may have your very own Lord of the Rings. So just to round off on it, I mean, this has been a bit of a, I'll be honest with you, it's been a fun episode for me to do. I will not watch this fucking film again, though. I really won't. It's beyond gross. You need a strong stomach for it. You really do. I mean, you've been warned and I saw it so long ago and I remember finding it so funny, but this time I was just trying not to vomit. So, you know, if Jackson's intent was to totally gross you out, like you've never been grossed out before and make you almost wish you had a bucket next to you when watching this, well, job well done. Job well done. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Um, I haven't ruined it for you because I don't think this film can be ruined. It's just nuts. Um, but now on to something a little bit nicer. And that is my um, podcast promo. And I have been listening to this girl recently. Her name is Lindsay. And she does true crime and it's kind of, I like, she does a bit of a personal touch to it, kind of puts in her own thoughts and her own opinions while giving you really great information on the story that she's telling. And that's from the podcast Stolen From Me, but um, I will let her tell you herself. Hello and welcome to Stolen From Me by Lindsay, a true crime weekly podcast and YouTube channel. I've covered such cases as Molly McLaren, Susan Capper, and Gemma Hater. Each week, we take a look at each individual case and try to bring as much awareness to it as possible. You can find me on all your favourite podcast platforms and YouTube at Stolen From Me by Lindsay. Thank you and see you all soon. Goodbye. So I'd like to say make sure you go and listen to Lindsay from Stolen From Me. Uh, go rate and review her, subscribe, give her five stars. And I'd also like to say thank you for listening uh, to my podcast. And don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. I really do appreciate all the, uh, the feedback. Had some lovely comments. I've had a, one or two bad ones. But anyway, and if you want even more of me, you can find me on Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, on Twitter as A Nightmare Pod, on Letterboxd as A Nightmare Pod. You can email me as Once Upon a Nightmare Pod at gmail.com and Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare and I would chat to you very soon. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. The Podbreed Network is strictly for the small podcasts that are up and coming in the vast world of podcasting. Podbreed is made up of many diverse podcasts coming together to achieve the same goal of being the best damn podcast network on the planet. Find out more at podbreed.com. Thank you.